And, and I'm joined today uh, by Lucas Marku, uh, Director of Jerem's, and Pete Miller, um, Director and Head of Tax of Jerem's Miller, Head of Corporate Tax, head of, corporate tax of Jerem's Miller. Um, so we are here to talk about our immediate thoughts about the autumn statement, which we were all eagerly watching today, and perhaps some of us have been somewhat um, let down by what could have been some interesting predictions that we had. Underwhelmed. That's a good word. I like that very much. Um, so, as we go through, we'll talk about the various topics that were raised in the um, in the statement, and also many of the ones that we thought might be raised and are not, or were not raised. Um, there's a number of platforms that we are streaming on, including LinkedIn. Anybody who uh, wishes to contribute. Um, if you comment on LinkedIn, we'll be able to see those comments um, through our platform and um, we can respond. Um, and yeah, the more people to comment, the hopefully the more lively the discussion will be in an underwhelming budget, shall we say. Um, so where should we start? As Pete and I do corporate, shall we start with corporate? I think probably good. Yeah. Um, what did you think, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think, what were the exciting things? Um, right, so the first thing was we've now got full expensing made permanent. Um, we already had full expensing. Mm. Um, in a sense, it's a good thing because now it's effectively a first year allowance for capital investment. Um, and Pete and I did, uh, some of you might have been watching on Friday, we did a predictions podcast um, where I discussed capital allowances and I don't think we have, I don't think we can, we'll come up with our predictions at the end, but I don't think we really thought there were going to be much reformed capital allowances. Uh, one thing I said was please rename full expensing, which they do not appear to have done. Um, so what is full expensing? Because it's nothing to do with the P&L. If, um, if you're thinking that it means you can put your capital asset additions through the P&L, that is not what it means. All it means is that we can now have 100% relief in the year of acquisition. So they still sit on your balance sheet for accounting purposes. Um, that had already been announced uh, in April 23, I think it was announced, or at mm. least it, was, it came in from April 23, um, and they've now made it permanent. Which, to some extent, I mean, I don't really see as a major change. Um, you know, in, in, in the world of... of sort of especially short-lived tax reliefs to try and stimulate the economy, a three-year time horizon is as long as it gets, especially when we know there's got to be an election within what's now about 15 months. Yeah. So, you know, to say it's gone from a three-year timeline to no deadline or no 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 sunset clause, as it were, um, really is, is largely meaningless because the question of whether it continues in place in that form or as a some kind of enhanced first-year allowance or whatever um, is, is, is going to be down to the next government, whatever complexion that government takes. So, I mean, in a way, I feel it's like they just announced something. You could be very cynical and say they announced it in March with a three-year time window so that they could get back up on the podium today and announce that they've extended it from three years to forever, as mm. though that was in any way meaningful. Look at you deal with a lot of, um, obviously, Accounts and your, your director and Jeremy, so you deal with lots of accounts and audit um, clients. Really, how, how many of these are affected? Because most uh, there are some big clients out there that make a lot of capital additions in the year, but we've got an AIA that has a million pound anyway. The full expensing only applies to new assets. I think I think when Matt, one of our colleagues, was saying he read something that 97% of people don't spend over a million anyway. Yeah, if you notice that um, Jeremy Hunt said that when he what the statement, he mentioned the very large um, companies, um, international companies, were going to really you know benefit from this, and that's probably you know not yeah. saying that reality. Mm -hmm. Some people might say it's a bit of a soundbite, <laughs> you know, 97% um, are really unaffected. But mm. he can say that it's what is it the biggest ever boost for business investment in modern time? Which, yeah, you know, which <coughs> in, it in, in terms of the fact that it might it might stimulate some foreign direct investment yeah. and therefore yeah. jobs. Yes, as a measure for British business, as as yeah. in 
uh, the, the self-employed, the SMEs that are our lifeblood, yeah. um, I'm not sure it does a great deal. No. No. Uh, anyway, nevertheless, it's better to have it than not have it, I yeah, guess, yeah. if I could try and put a positive gloss on it, which is contrary to my normal nature. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the major thing for companies is R&D. I'm saying major thing because it's the major headline within a list of maybe not so major points, but mm. um, I think certainly for the R&D advisors out there, there's some changes coming. To, and I mean, personally, from what I've seen people saying already in LinkedIn and, and places like that, um, I'm not sure that this is in any way a simplification. Um, what they're saying, well, they're saying we're simplifying R&D because we're merging an SME and an RDEX scheme. But actually what they're saying is we're getting rid of an SME scheme and moving to an RDEX scheme, which is, I think mo most people who deal with uh, R&D would say the RDEX scheme is a more complex scheme anyway. Well, yes, and, and there's still going to be a special scheme, scheme for SMEs for those that are R&D rich or whatever the yeah, phrase is, intensive, intensive that's, that's right. So the RDEX is above the line credit, it's all about, you know, it's a actual big effort to identify yeah. what's safe and there is more indeed mm -hmm. when you know the SMEs are not really concerned about yeah. the um, European yeah. and the, the PL and the account. It's all about the real cost. Yes. Yeah. And I think we, we were talking about this a while ago about actually R and D relief was large is largely a part the policy of R and D is to bring in more investment into the economy and perhaps actually more foreign investment. Well I think I think that's very much the point. I mean if you go back to late last century, make myself sound very old. Um, How was it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we just got running water and gas lighting in the house, you know. So it was nice. Nice. Um, that was all came out of research and development, you see. Um, but but in all seriousness, you know that that was exactly it. In the in the early noughties, it was all about making the UK a competitive place to do business. So we had R and D. We had um, this substantial shelving exemption, the corporate intangibles regime, which is eviscerated 15 years later um but the point is that when you say you want to make the uk a good place to do business what you're really saying is you want people to come here to do business and i've seen an awful lot of people claiming an awful lot of tax back or tax savings using the r d scheme who would have done that amount of r d in this country anyway so there may be a marginal impact on people who were already here but you know somebody who was born and brought up, for example, here in, in Soli Hull, where our offices are, uh, and, and is, 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 you know, operating on one of the business parks, isn't suddenly going to say, I'm going to up sticks and go to Belize because they have a fantastic R&D tax regime. So this really is about the big national, multinationals, should I say, putting some of their R&D function into the UK. Whether it has any impact at all anyway is a completely different story. And I've seen academic papers that put the actual tax system about six or seventh on the list of top 10 priorities in terms of where do we put our R&D. So um, it's as wide as it's long. Um, and the other thing, you know, I, I don't deal with R&D day to day, but the other thing talking to some R&D specialists is the changes that have been proposed, the admin side of things is not getting easier either. Um, no, well, a lot of those came in in March, didn't they? Yeah. Like the requirement to 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 sort of pre-register that you're going to make a claim. Yes. Um, further changes in the statement. Yeah. Well, wasn't there something good. about um, a, a difference in the way that which the compliance is now dealt with? Yes. Uh, yeah. Which, given what has been happening for the last six to eight months or so, fills me with a, a an intense sense of foreboding. And I also don't deal with R and D, yeah. but it just makes it difficult when you're sitting down with people who do R and D and to say. You should make this claim because they go, I've heard that basically as soon as you make a claim, you're accused of fraud by HMRC, mm -hmm. which is basically true. Yeah. And we've got a lot of clients, yeah. um, not necessarily do, done R&D with us, but there's plenty of clients who are receiving inquiries now, aren't there? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's a claim. Yeah. Yeah. HMRC seem to start with the starting point that it's not a, a valid claim and it's almost you need to prove that it is rather than yeah. That kind of proving but, but yeah. those claims are are accompanied with the report that yeah. proves that it's yeah. real um, and it's clear these people are not reading it um i mean it's interesting because one of my um chums uh, you know that i'm involved with with various institute um ciot committees and uh one of my chums on the corporate um committee which kind of looks after things like the r d issues 
um, it became aware of a firm where, where having had this knockback with the revenue basically saying, nope, you can't have it. And the client saying, fine, you know, you amended my return. I refuse the amendment. Or, or, um, they promptly made a claim to the high court for payment of the of the R&D tax credit. I think it was. Um, and, you know, basically they were able to do this because I'm, I'm not quite sure procedurally, but they were able to sort of demonstrate that going through the tribunal was not the way forward. And literally, as soon as the papers were lodged with the High Court, the revenue caved in and um, the, the relevant sort of solicitor acting for HMRC said he would instruct HMRC to make full payment immediately. So I think, you know, business is pushing back, but, you know, something that was meant to make the UK a good place to do business is now a place, is now in a relief where if you claim it, you're accused of fraud, regardless of how legitimate you're claiming. Um, and that's just because HMRC is utterly incompetent in this area. Also, they've thrown lots of manpower without experience at it. Or training. Mm, yeah. yeah. Or even, I mean, but the point is these people haven't even read the revenues manuals that say how they will deal with R&D claims. <laughs> yeah. Or, indeed, read the actual reports. Um, anyway, that, that's not really part <laughs> of, 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 of the budget, but you know, it's all very well saying we're doing things to R&D, we're making it better, we're, we're making it simpler, not, we're making it more friendly, equally not. Um, but actually, the practical reality is people and those those inward investors are choosing not to come here or are leaving because of some of this, uh, some of HMRC's current behaviour. It's almost as though having done nothing compliance wise for 20 years, the, the pendulum swung completely the other way and they might as well abolish the, the, the relief if they're going to act like this. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I saw a single R&D inquiry up until about 12 months. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, so I think they're kind of the two big things, talking points in corporate mm -hmm. tax. There's a couple of other smaller things, some that might affect with Jerome's being a Midlands-based business. Um, some some Jerome's clients might be affected by new investment zones. They've announced one in the East Midlands and one in the West Midlands, and another in Greater Manchester, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, so whether, whether some clients might be able to take advantage of that. Um, otherwise, the headline is there are no changes, so no changes yeah. to CT rates. Um, we've still got coming in a, a small um, small rate limit of fifty thousand um, pounds, where you if your profits are tax or profits are below fifty thousand pounds, you'll pay nineteen percent. If they're above two hundred and fifty thousand, you'll pay twenty five percent. Moving on to some, um, I suppose more. just before we move on to the other things we were looking at, it's worth noting that the one thing we expected, I'm not sure if it fully comes in under corporate tax, but it's something <laughs> that we would deal with in that arena, um, is, is the sort of sale to EOT stuff that, um, we, yeah. we, we know that there's been a lengthy, um, consultation, uh, absolutely no announcements were made today, neither, neither in the house nor uh, on either of the Treasury or HMRC websites. So we'll assume either that they're putting off any announcements till the new year, which wouldn't be unreasonable because I think the, the um, consultation period ended in September, didn't it? Oh, so yes. it gives them, yeah, so it gives them three or four months, but they've only maybe had a couple of months so far to actually review the comments and consider the yeah. things that ministers I might think that, choose that to do. That was my main thing was, have they really had long enough to make any real changes? Mm. Although I did hope there were some minor things in there that could be done fairly easily, yeah. like not being able to use offshore trusts and increasing mm. that um, income tax-free bonus. But yeah, I think they probably want to announce the whole package in one go, yeah. and and with effect from let's say sales into an EOT from one April. Yeah. And maybe part of that would also involve them saying, well, if we if we sort of half-assed announced it today then would people say, well, actually, since the rest of the changes are not coming in for a while, we'll, we'll hang on, True. you know, and you end up with a dip of sales into EOTs because people are waiting for the promised changes, yeah. as it were. So we'll wait and see anyway. Nothing, yeah. nothing was said today, so it's not really worth speculating as to why not. Just thought it's worth noting that it didn't happen. Yeah, and actually, maybe it benefits some who, who do have offshore trusts and therefore don't have to worry about it mm. until the next statement that we have. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, IR35, there's been a slight change there. Um, I wouldn't say it's any, any headline grabbing changes, but um, effectively what they've done is say um, POI li liability, which the new rules have 
IR35 say that the who would be person who would be the employer if this was an employment relationship, um, they have to deduct PAYE from the payments they make. Um, the slight change that we've got is that um, the deemed employer can now deduct tax that would be paid by the worker. Or has been paid. Yeah. It before been before paid. you need know, the agreement of the worker when you look at an offset. Yeah. And it's always a worry there. So this, I think, has been discussed for some time about this coming in. It's good to know that eventually. It, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think trying to stay positive, I think this is yeah. a, a good change. Um, and yeah, I think it will help cash flow as well for, um, for the businesses involved. Mm -hmm. So, although most of the time when we're involved in IR35, it's am I outside of IR35? And if not, restructure rather than get caught by IR35. Yeah, we were successful with our thing, um business rates that's a slight um not sure how excited i ever get with business rates being a corporate tax advisor but um business rates is a another is it a change it's not really a change it's just that they've extended it for another year which um, must be important for um, yeah mm, so in, those, in those kind of difficult sectors with um kind of light and heat going up and mm. Wage increases and obviously food costs going up. Hospitality, yeah, yeah. hospitality is difficult time. So, and, and I think a one-year extension is actually more meaningful in a funny yeah. sort of way than lifting the the the, the limit altogether. Because you're saying, look, you know, even if there were an election in May, it's unlikely that an incoming government would then accelerate any change they might have in mind. So, a one-year extension to the current business rates regime or relief regime would actually allow you to to plan accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, that would be genuine. We've been positive. Yeah, it's not my, not my normal <laughs> way of being, but you know, I have an audience. I have to pretend they want me to be positive. Um, again, we're kind of racing through this because the changes are fairly minor in, in most cases. Mm. But if we talk about how employees have been affected by this budget, um, we've got the national living wage that's gone up. Substantially. That's quite substantial. I mean, it does recognize genuinely recognize the rate of inflation over the last few months. Yeah. See, so it's, it's gone up to £11.44, which I think equates to something like 22000 yeah. a year. Yeah. yeah. But he also pointed out that this was something like a 75 or 8% increase. increase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wrote that down, but yeah, it's gone up by at least a pound, I think, yeah. up to £11.44. So. But I think the, the next bullet point, is, is absolutely huge. The national insurance contribution cuts. Yeah. Um, because it, it, in a way, um, national insurance has been a little bit of a stealth tax. You know, I remember the first time in, in my memory that the rate was increased, which is probably 15 years or so ago now. Um, we're just coming into the modern era. The dinosaurs have died out now, uh, Lucas. Um, just simply odd ankylosaur that's guarding the car park, you know. Um, but but in all seriousness, um, it, it sort of was one of those things that the, I think it was around nine point something percent, and then the chancellor said, oh, "We need to raise some cash. We'll just put a penny on it, you know, yeah. a one percentage point." Everyone thought, "Well, that isn't very much," and and yeah. you know, you sort of almost don't notice the relatively small, although it's probably you know, depending on your income, twenty, thirty, fifty pounds. Um, but accumulated across the whole country, yeah. it became a very large saving for the government. Remember, the government or arguably at least sees this as like a negative tax um, when, when you're giving it back, which they don't normally do. Um, so I think a 2% and loudly hailed 2% decrease yeah, yeah. Is, is very, very significant. And I think, you know, especially the so-called squeezed middle classes, um, are going to see this makes a, a you know a material difference in their wage ah, packets yeah. uh, or salary slips each period. Some of the figures he was saying and are, are also in the statement was something around uh, the average worker will save about five hundred pounds a year. Which yeah, was it like an averagely well paid or averagely paid nurse would get yes five hundred twenty pounds yeah. a year extra. Yeah, um, policeman slightly more, but it's ten to fifteen pounds a week now. For many many people, that's that's really meaningful. Yeah. You know. Um, I wonder if there's something else here as well, though, because there's been a lot of talk over the last how many years since the OTS first mooted it, I guess. So probably seven, eight, nine years mm -hmm. um, of, of merging national insurance and income tax because yes. they're kind of taxing the same thing at different rates with different bands. And it's all a bit silly and confusing. 
Yeah. And, and you get people like Dan Needle publishing these kind of graphs of tax rates yeah. against income that just look utterly ridiculous and sort of progressive in the main, but 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 sort of progresses then regresses and so on. So is there an argument, you know, suppose in a couple of years' time the economy is doing well, the next chancellor comes in and says, well, let's drop it down to 8%. And suddenly NIC has disappeared as, as a separate yeah. tax. Now, if at the same time you maintain the current rates of income tax and income tax bans, then you may in real terms have no decrease in the actual tax take. Yeah. But you've got rid of this anomaly that is this rather strange, which when it first came in was very largely a hypothecated tax. The money went into a pot to pay for, I think it was partly the National Health Service and partly pensions, state pensions. Now that's not not really there at all. I mean, there, there are vestiges of it in government finances, but frankly, if it all disappeared, in some ways getting rid of NICs and just letting income tax rise in real terms is almost the easiest way of, of carrying out that merger. Now, I don't know if that's behind this or if it's just a, a headline grab a wine well, rabbit out of the hat. kind of discount on the time and pay, pay into account you pay in IC or you might have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But good I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but overall, I think it has to be a good thing. I, I, and, and, and it's a good thing for an awful lot of people. Yeah. And that's coming in from the 6th of January rather than mm. next tax Of course. <laughs> um, for your contributions staying as they were, or, uh, or is it just employee? I'm, I'm, I don't no, think there's anything in there about employers, no? No, okay. Um, talking about whether national insurance should, should be a tax or whether we should murder whatever, moving on to the self-employed. <coughs> um, class 2 national insurance was the first probably one of the first things that he actually said that I actually started writing down. In fact, no, no, it was the R&D first and then class two national insurance. Um, so yeah, in, in his words, they are abolishing class two national insurance. In my words, I don't think that's in any way accurate. Um, but what they are doing is saying class two national insurance, if it's a mandatory um, payment, it is being abolished. So if you're over, the 12,570, if you're over 12,517 taxable profits, um, you'll no longer have to pay class two. Um, if you're between, I've got to write these things down. Um, I do have another one. 6725. 6725 to 12,570, you don't pay anything, but you do get your credit. So your state pension um, is preserved if you're within those limits and you still don't have to pay. Um, and then if you're below 6,725, you can voluntarily pay it in order to ensure you've got that national insurance credit. Um, hence why I say it's not really abolished because it's still there as a voluntary payment for those who... Um, who Especially the lower paid who need to preserve their pension. Well, yeah. that type of but um, that in a way seems almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? So we see we've got a completely regressive tax. The more you earn, the less you pay. Yeah. Um, I mean, the numbers might be small, but again, it is still, was it 345 pounds a year? Um, yeah, or something. Voluntary. So those numbers compare kind of to the savings from um, the cuts in national insurance for your nurse and your, yeah. you know. So if your nurse is saving 520 because then her, her plus one NICs have gone down by 2% and then losing yeah. 345 because being low paid, maybe she has to, he or she has to make up the class two, I'm not sure, but you know. yes, but at the same time, I think paying class two is pretty much the cheapest way to get a year's credit for your for, for your state pension. So okay, yeah, yeah, um, that's fair enough. Yeah, it, it it might still be costly given it, we're talking about someone on less than um, six thousand ish. Yeah, um, that's what it is, yeah, when they yeah when they retire. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. I think I'm not sure what class what the amount of class three you have to pay because yeah. that's the other one where you can top yourself up if you like. Um, we should mention class four as well, going down by a percentage point. Which, yeah, and I think it would have been a bit odd to reduce employ employees next and not self-employed next. Self next. Um, yeah. So class four was nine percent for the self-employed, um, and it's going down to eight percent. Um, again, with I mean nine to eight percent doesn't feel like a massive change, but um, 
One step closer to abolition. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. Um, yeah. So um, a, a couple of changes on, on national insurance that are self-employed as well. Um, I don't think they've released any real detail, but they are suggesting some further amendments to the cash basis. Um, again, this is self-employed, which I don't really do deal with day to day, but they're, they're claiming they're going to simplify and expand on the income tax cash basis for self-employed yeah. individuals. I mean, certainly in terms of <coughs> simplification, that's not a high bar. No. <laughs> um, I remember when it came in, and 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 I can't remember what the limit is or was for you know how how much you had to be earning before you couldn't use yeah. it anymore. But it was so complicated, and there were pages and pages of legislation, and this was meant to make life easier for the relatively low earning self-employed that they could simply self-assess their profits on a uh, a, a specific cash type basis, but there were so many rules around it that they were all going to go and have to find an accountant. And honestly, I, I know that some of the smaller one-man band accountants in, in Leicester, where I lived, uh, lived now, but lived at the time and knew a lot of the people, just basically said, they've got enough on their plate with their current clients. They're not going to go off and learn this new, more complicated regime. So that almost forces those people who wanted to use cash basis to go to the slightly more expensive accountants who had slightly more, as it were, critical mass in terms of learning a new regime. Yeah. So that, that was just, again, completely counterintuitive. The, the, the so-called simplification of a cash basis wasn't at all simple. So be interesting to see what comes out of this. We shall see. Mm. At this point, we don't know any of the detail. No, we don't. We don't. But it'd be delightful if it's a true simplification. <laughs> Can it ever be that simple? could be simpler yeah. that's a given um those are some of the main headlines one that will affect me slightly in the work that i do eis mm. um so originally that was intended to be abolished in 2025 um i, I think that had already been extended i can't remember when it was when it was initially brought in um i think it's been extended a number of times um since then, um, but we've now got a fairly long extension. Um, instead of 2025, we're now 2035. Um, oh, so they've added 10 years to your career. They've added 10 years to my career. For Happy days. Good for our clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll have before then. So. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, to be honest, in 1935, I fully expect Nick to be Prime Minister. Um, <laughs> I can't say I, I share the same aspirations. Oh, your name is St. Jeremy, of course, yeah. Okay. So for those of you who didn't watch, uh, Mr. Hunt made a little bit of a joke about both parties thinking seriously about making someone called Jeremy Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but both parties didn't happen. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, absolutely. Um, that's all there is to say on AIS. They didn't actually make any changes as, as far as I can tell to the actual schemes. Um, EIS is, to be fair, especially for a lot of the the size clients we're talking about, we're talking about fairly small startup businesses most of the time. Um, and for those types of businesses to be able to raise finance um, through individuals who, and the individuals will get significant tax reliefs, capital gains tax and income tax. Um, you know, EIS is, is the incentive for the investor and um, it is um, valuable, I think, to a lot of um, businesses that we work with. So mm. um, that's definitely welcome. And it says it keeps me in a job for another 10 years. Yes. Um, the other thing which um, I have made note, noted down here, but hadn't actually um, noted on on, a, on the list of what we were going to talk about was this um, prompt payers. Um, yes, that was really interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's on the screen as well. We've had that in construction industry. Had that for mm. some time, haven't they? Right. Um, it's just whether making sure that actually mm. it'd be interesting if they follow through with it. Like what they're saying is, if you haven't got a history of paying promptly, then you can't even be considered for government work, which is yeah. going to be a real. Incentive. I think it's going to be huge for, yeah. for a lot of people. Those sort of mid, large, and middle-sized businesses who have a lot of small business suppliers. Yeah. Um. Who who. They often squeeze, and I'm not saying every bit, every big business is bad, um, but there are a lot of businesses out there who deliberately take as long as possible to uh, to pay. I um, occasionally tell the story of a very well-known household name PLC Group, 
that I won't name publicly just in case I get sued. <laughs> but I have been told by their advisors that they're very openly their 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 kind of policy is to pay their suppliers as late as possible and um you know frequently on the steps of the court, metaphorically at least. Um but so so the idea of this is is what they've said is that you won't be able to be considered for government contracts unless you can prove that you pay your suppliers routinely within currently 55 days. I think that they said that will go down to 45 in a year or so and then 30 eventually. But to be honest, I mean, <coughs> with, a, with a decent accounts department properly run, it, it cannot be difficult to simply pay invoices on a 30 day basis, you know. If, if you do a one month, one day a month pay of your payment of your suppliers kind of run, then unless there is a query against the actual bill for some reason, when, when obviously you're entitled to check in general terms, why on earth shouldn't it always be paid within 30 days or so? Yeah, um, yeah. the government you know, aren't paying their bills on time, they're saying, so why shouldn't you pay? Uh, yes, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, and. You know, it's an interesting one because I think the problem with policing all the all the various laws there have been and the statutory interest rate uh, and so on for late payment of bills, the average small businessman would turn around and say, yes, but if I'm getting work from, you know, and, and let's name someone like Tarmac, because I don't think they can sue me if they're in, in liquidation. But, you know, just as an example, suppose a small businessman said, I'm just not getting paid by tarmac and i've written and i've phoned and i've begged and i've pleaded and now i'm taking them to court and what happens is with luck he gets paid the money he's owed probably doesn't get his legal costs back and never gets any more work from them again because they just say well he's a troublemaker we don't or she is a troublemaker we don't want to work with them anymore so this actually becomes a little bit more self-policing yeah. and and doesn't require the small business person themselves to put their heads above the parapet and lose future work from that that that, that source, that that customer, that client. Yeah. It, it reminds me actually way back when when I worked in audit, we had a client who um, basically connected <clears throat> did electrical connections and things like that. And um, so long ago, I can't remember who their customers were, but that's the type of business who um, certainly would, could be affected by government-based mm. contracts. But they were always chasing cash flow. Um, so arguably, this type of change with a with a company that is in financial difficulty, struggling to pay mm. its debts as they fall due, this change could create them losing contracts, therefore not being able to actually pay the debts that they already have, and therefore actually going under. Well, yes, I, I, there could there could be a negative, but I think the the intentions are good, and the and the way that they're trying to do it, I think, is sensible. Um, and if you are talking about government contracts where that person is being paid regularly and on time, I mean, yes, I agree. If that company also has other big clients who are not paying on time, but then the point is the bigger the, the person who's not potentially not paying on time, the more likely they are to have government contracts yeah, or to be seeking government yeah. contracts. Yeah. And especially if the government turns around and says, and they'll review all current suppliers as well, yeah. which they haven't really talked about yet, but if they just turn around and said, okay, Either we review you all or you're all on annually renewable agreements anyway. So we effectively do the review when we choose to, whether or not to uh, yeah. renew the agreement. So e either way, I understand you're quite right. There may be a couple of people who get caught out, particularly at the beginning, but it should have effectively a trickle down effect. Yeah. Interesting to see how they get this information. <coughs> um, mm. the I suppose you could actually look yeah, at bank statements, couldn't you? Quite involved in that, mm, yeah. It'd be quite a bit of DD required, yeah. Framework, but yeah, worth it. And that would obviously come off the price of the contract, yeah. <laughs> but what, once, once, once they've got a procedure established, I suspect it will be fairly straightforward, yeah. yeah. Um, I think those are the, the main things that kind of he did say. So the next question is, what didn't he say? Ah. Uh, what were we hoping for? Why was I so excited about this budget? And I'm now talking in a deflated tone. <laughs> I didn't realize you had another one. <laughs> it's all the same time. It just sounds so different in my head. Yeah, that's yeah. If we hadn't had the results of the recent violation, maybe we would have seen arguably very little any tax cuts. Yeah. Um, mm. And they're preparing it, I think, fair to say, preparing or they're preparing for 
spring budget and manifesto. You know, what they're going to try and bring in the spring budget yeah. and what's going to go in the manifesto. Yeah. Manifesto, I feel, probably be the corporation tax cuts you know, this time, a few years' time. Yeah. So this is always, I think, going to be mm. a little bit of a kind of bit of plaster just to kind of yeah. start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Selection. I mean, certainly our starting point last week when we did our little sort of broadcast about what we thought might happen was how much room has he got? And I'm, I'm genuinely surprised because I've also looked at the, the tables of numbers in or we used to call the red book, but it's green. Um, and, you know, we're, we're getting those those Nick's cuts are getting to eight or nine billion pounds a year, but about two or three years down the line in terms mm. of cost. And I'm struggling, to be honest, to see where the positives were, as in I don't mean positives in business circle, where, yeah, where, where the balance is. So I think he's actually, this is a little bit of a spend budget rather than a tax and spend. Yeah. Um, so I think, you, um, yeah, and obviously at this stage in the electoral cycle, and it's one of those things that, that is an unfortunate consequence of, of our particular form of possibly all forms of democracy, but um, at this stage of the cycle, yes, of course, they're ramping up to make people feel good yeah. this time next year, if not rather earlier. Yeah. Um, be interesting to see if they do go for a winter election again, because I think the, the general election on the 12th of December 2019 was very, very unusual. I think it would have been decades, if not hundreds of years, since there had previously been an election yeah. outside that general sort of May through September yeah. I think the maximum period. 14 months maximum we've got before the next yeah, well, election. I mean, yes, it's, there's obviously a bit of leeway over the five yeah. months, isn't there? Because yeah. people are talking about January 25. Yeah, that's a maximum, I think, 14 months. And everyone's saying 12 months. We'll see. I'll mm. say. And, uh... <clears throat> yeah. So we've already talked about EOTs that because of the consultation we thought maybe we'll see some possibly minor changes which didn't happen yeah. um you were heavily involved Pete, in the uh, consultation which i think ended in july on stamp duty modernization yes um so that was one where in terms of timing i felt you know by november um they'd had three four months to consider and again you know when they put these consultations out and and make some suggestions you almost feel those decisions are largely made you know we are going to do that unless industry comes back the, the consultation comes back with some compelling reasons why not yeah. and certainly most of the stuff in the stamp duty document i think people were mostly fairly positive about because that itself followed a year-long consultation with a with a with a sort of mm -hmm. steering group of about 25 or 30 of us around the country and from different types of firms and industry and so on so there was a feeling that it, it would be possible for them to announce a brand new regime for taxing transactions, tra tra share, transactions involving shares and what are currently chargeable instruments, one sort or another. Um, much like Nick's comments earlier on about full expensing, um, one of the more interesting pleas in terms of lots of people putting it into their responses is that if you're going to have a new tax on this type of transaction, please call it anything but stamp duty, you know, call it share transfer tax or instrument transfer tax or something, because that would describe what it does. And it would stop the utter confusion with people nowadays talking about stamp duty and nobody can tell until you actually get to the subject matter, whether they're talking about what is now stamp duty or what is now stamp duty land tax, which of course is a property transaction tax, which sensible people like Scotland call it land and buildings transaction tax. The Welsh call it land transactions tax, and we still call it stamp duty land tax, which means everybody calls it stamp duty and nobody knows what they're talking about. That's always the problem when you're having a conversation with a client and you're sort of saying, well, stamp duty will be payable on this, let's say if it's a partition demerger, and they're thinking, oh, we've got rates, what, 3%, 5%, what's the rate? Mm -hmm. or, so, uh, or, yeah, 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 yeah. But even the revenue have the same problem. You know, their manual is called the stamp taxes on shares yeah. manual. SGSM. So yeah, change it, please change it. Um, but I mean, there were lots of very you know, interesting things said in the consultation. Uh, to be fair, the consultation document didn't have that many kind of part made decisions in the same way that the EOT mm -hmm. conduct. Yeah. Uh, and because I think what's going to be given out is, you know, a brand new chunk of legislation, much like we did in 2003 with, with SDLT, there was a, a brand new tax and it was all in Finance Act 2003 and mostly still is. 
Um, so I'm sort of, I, I, I half hope they would at least be saying something like, yes, the draft legislation will be released in December or January yeah. or something, because I, I think the issue with what's going to be a brand new tax is that it, it's not going to be a few pages of amendments to something that exists. It, it, even where the current treatment of things is to be preserved, um, the legislation will likely be very different, differently phrased because we've got a new way of looking at legislation. I mean, strictly, some of the stamp duty rules are still in sort of Finance Act 18, or sorry, the Stamp Act, Stamp Duty Act 1890 and Obviously, some of it goes back to 1930s, yeah, 1967. Now. Yeah. So, you know, there's going to be maybe 40 or 50 pages of legislation that people are going to need to pour over and work out how they all interact with each other and how whatever's going on compares to what we had before yeah. and whether it does what the government said it was going to do. And that does take time. It takes a lot longer than when you just get a couple of pages of legislation to make some specific amendments. Yeah. Um, inheritance tax, I think a lot of people thought something was gonna happen. Mm. You know, looking at the predictions that we've had at the start of this week, I did feel bad. We, we did our predictions podcast on yes. Friday, and then I saw so much press over, press over the weekend at the start of the week thinking, I didn't think of that. <laughs> well, you did, I thought you said there was gonna be a rate reduction. I did, yeah. On IHT, that is one that I, and, and, and my prediction was that they might increase the nil rate band instead because it hasn't been increased for so long. So all this speculation over the later part of well, sorry, the early part of the weekend, I think it was, yeah. um, was that the rates would go down and therefore that you'd be right and uh, I'd be wrong. So um, and then and then number ten kind of scotched the rumor. So I don't know if, yeah. if 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 Jeremy Hunt was kind of floating it by a judicious leak, as it were. Mm. Um, so that's inheritance tax and capital gains. I mean, I can't. We've been talking for at least three years to clients. Every budget. Are they going to do anything with CGT? <clears throat> I mean, the last, the, the last major thing that they did was they made entrepreneurs relief, business asset disposal relief. So one they did rename. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily entrepreneurs yeah. relief so, is easier. So then we started calling it bad relief, and guys from the treasury used to get really upset on on, on some of these conference calls. But. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean that was that was an odd one because again the government sponsored or, or, or requested a review of capital gains tax um, and certain aspects of it from the Office of Tax Simplification, late lamented, um, and one of the things that was mentioned was it may not raise much money, but presentationally, politically, it would be good. I mean, I think we talked a little bit on Friday about how maybe it's more of a more of a potential labour. Thing. Yeah, I think yeah. the man has said they look at it, but still, they've even said they don't want to necessarily yeah. equalise yeah. it with income tax rates. But yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. But I think in terms of you know who pays it, so the people who pay capital gains tax and and who are uh, uh, impacted by things like business asset disposal relief are, if you like, a lot of small business owners when they sell their businesses. Yeah. Um, and to that extent, um. If if a lot of those are as they may well be being entrepreneurial might be more likely to vote Tory. I'm trying to be a little bit careful, and I'm certainly not making a political statement here. But if you like, the Tories might see the self-employed as largely their heartland, their core mm. vote. So to increase the tax that those people would pay when they sell the business they've spent a lifetime building up might be counterproductive in vote yeah, terms. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when you were just talking about the aligning with income tax, that was the OTS that suggested that I think three years ago, which is why we constantly, constantly had these concerns, uh, these right. concerns. And, and for yes. many years that aligning was there. Yes. Yeah. It's just that we had things like business asset disposal relief, entrepreneurs relief, business asset taper relief. Uh, in, relief. In, when I was yeah. growing up, retirement relief, yeah, still remember that. Um, and, and, you know, so so in effect, as particularly business owners or trading business owners didn't pay the full rate. Yeah. yeah. Um, just so that, uh, I mean, some of you might have been joining us last week, so I thought I'll share our predictions. And more importantly, where did Pete and I go wrong and where you should never listen to us again in future budget predictions? Of course, if we're talking about um, actual tax advisory, Certainly welcome to listen to us. But how well did we do on our predictions? EOT announcements? None. 
None. So, <laughs> question mark, are we right? Oh, I think you were right on that one, Pete. Well, <laughs> you said no changes. I said, oh, they're changing income tax. Well, I, I, I think I think the point is that, that there wasn't an announcement. We both thought there would be announcements about EOTs, yeah. and there were not. Yeah. Um, I don't think either of us thought there'd be stamp duty. We thought that's far too big of an overhaul to put through. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, right? yeah. SDLT, yeah, that's one we haven't talked about. There was quite a lot of talk, I think, um, in terms of SDLT, that they might change um, how the mixed use rules would, would work. So at the moment, if you have a mixed use property, by that I mean residential and non-residential in one, um, you pay non-residential rates. So the suggestion was, are they going to change it so that um, you apportion it? So you pay residential rates on the residential bit, non-residential rates on the non-residential bit. Mm -hmm. Nothing at all about SDLT. So um, yep. very wrong again. One for three, both of us at the moment. Yep. Um, capital allowances. Arguably both right. Yes. Um, but they didn't take into account your question or query <laughs> or your plea. Perhaps because you should have put an ex a question mark instead of an exclamation mark, then they might have taken more notice. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's a grammar, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't stop. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> um, I thought there might be some kind of announcement about maybe reviewing the effectiveness of incorporation relief, which was really trying to just put a little bit of controversy into the list because, you know, we felt that the Chancellor's um, room for manoeuvre was sufficiently low that it might be fun to just put something relatively yeah. unlikely in. So I'm not surprised it didn't happen, but I guess on the basis that Nick's silent mean silence meant he didn't think it was going to happen. He was right now. I was right. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been an awful lot, and Spotlight 63 being one of them, about certain tax avoidance schemes on incorporation. But um, I, I can't honestly remember the conversation we had last week, but I think the point was, or, or my point was, incorporation relief is a valuable relief. Because if you're converting yep. from a sole trader or partnership to a company, you, you're you not getting cash out of the business. That's not a sort of an exit event. Um, most of it, most incorporations are for commercial reasons. And therefore, being able to do that without incurring significant tax charges is quite important. So I was right to say there would be no changes to corporation tax rights, and you was wrong. Mm. I thought maybe, just maybe, 50,000 50, for, I mean, even the small a lot of small companies that, you know, Jerem that for 50,000 is not yeah. a very high limit, is it? So, um, and we've already talked about us both being wrong on inheritance tax. Yeah. I didn't actually add all of that up, but I think it's about on us even, if I'm honest. Yeah, I guess so. Um, <coughs> yeah. So, but it was quite a little a fun little exercise, and of course, it's possible that if we extended this list to what might happen between now and the actual publication of a full-scale Finance Act 2024. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because normally, in the days when there was an actual budget statement, fiscal event, as it were, in November, there would be the publication of draft legislation in December. Now. I went back and checked, and of course, there was quite a lot of um, draft legislation published in July for what they called the Finance Act 2023 slash 24 or whatever. So it may be there's no further stuff to be released because normally they would announce it or they also say, and on this date will be announced or yes. you know, releasing the consultation documents on this, that, and the other, which is what happened with the OTs, for example. Yeah. So interesting that I, I suspect nothing much more will happen fiscally until March, usually when there's yeah. perhaps another fiscal event, whatever that might be. Uh, maybe sometime before that, they will actually publish an entire finance bill. Yeah. Um, but yes, a, 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 in, in many ways, a bit of a damp squid, even though we've, we've managed to spend, you know, 50 minutes talking about that damp squid. But not as much happened as we thought might, no. given the activity that there's been already this year, like the, the consultations. Yeah, I think I think that's the point. I mean, some of the positive things are, are less changes, more extensions of what we already have. Um, yeah, I think overall there is some certainly for sort of the um, in, individuals on 
sort of reasonable salaries of thirty-five thousand or so. Um, at least they they're slightly better off um, by by around five hundred thousand, five hundred thousand if only, uh, five hundred pounds um, a year, and possibly slightly more if if you're earning slightly more. So, um, not not the the worst outcome, I don't think, mm -hmm. but. Um, as tax advisors, I think we were hopeful for slightly more interesting changes, shall we say. So I suspect they will come. There will be yes. a new Spring. tax on yeah. transactions and there will be changes to you never go through a consultation process and go, everybody says it works fine, let's not bother. <laughs> it's just never happened, has it? So um, well, I think in that case, all that remains is for me to thank everybody for joining us today. Yes, thank um, you so much. Thank you. Hopefully you've at least found it interesting and informative. Um, I know we'll be releasing uh, more information, more detailed information, um, I think tomorrow morning as well. So um, do look out for that. And um, I guess we'll see you at the next budget event. Or the next event we put out <laughs> on LinkedIn. Oh, we've got lots of, um, lots of I've software. got lots of things in the pipeline for that. Absolutely. For, uh, so keep watching this space. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.